0: And welcome back to The Insemination. We've got a beast of an episode for you. Coming on today is a titan in the advocacy world. We have Dr. Diane Tober, who is a professor of medical anthropology at the University of Alabama. Dr. Tober has received multiple grants. She is an author and she's been cited in so many different publications and just a wealth of knowledge when it comes to egg donation. And Dr. Tober has been researching egg donation, specifically how egg donors are treated within the United States, side effects and risks. And please remember that insemination is both visually filmed and recorded. So if you are a visual learner like myself, the full thing is filmed and put on YouTube for your convenience. And if you have not subscribed to our podcast, please do and drop a rating and a comment. Please also follow me on social media at Laura High Five to make sure that you never miss an insemination beat. And with that, let's get to the episode. And welcome to insemination, Dr. Diane Tober. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? I am so excited to have you on this podcast. I've had an eye on you, eye on your work, and I feel like it is so utterly important to talk about right now especially in the age of social media when there are so many clinics and cryobanks recruiting donors on social media without any context. And so I am so excited to kind of go in the weeds with you.
1: Great. Thanks. I'm really excited to be here.
0: So before we get started, I just want all of my listeners to kind of, uh, I kind of want you to flex a little bit. I'd like for you to sort of share your caliber um, because, hey, we love a woman in science. That is something (laughs) we we certainly appreciate. So first, I would love to talk about um, your background where, because you have received multiple, several grants supporting Mm -hmm. your research, and I'd love for you to kind of go into that.
1: Yeah, well, the, the, the largest grant that I received and the most significant grant that I received was the one from the National Science Foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a multi-year grant, four-year four grant. Well, it got extended because of COVID because I, it cut into my research. But in any case, the, the, the focus of the grant was to ex- examine the medical markets of egg, of donor eggs in the United States and Spain and to compare these two different, very different regulatory and cultural systems surrounding mm-hmm. egg donation and very different medical systems as well. And that was a, a, almost a $500,000 grant for a four year, what turned into a four-year project. So it was very supportive of my work. I'm very grateful to have been able to do it. And uh, the culmination of that grant now is several articles that I've recently published on, on egg donation, as well as um, pulling it all together. Now I'm in the process of writing a book about it. So um, that's very exciting to try to dig through <laughs> all this work that I've done for the past number of years and, and try to like bring it out. So now I know you
0: I know you've got your first book on the on the table and I would love for you to show everybody your first book romancing of the sperm
1: romancing the sperm the second book is not named after a movie. (laughs) (laughs) And
0: what is the title of your second book and when should people be looking looking for it on a bookshelf.
1: Yes, the title from, of my second book is Egonomics, Egg Donors and the Global Fertility Industry. And that's the provisional title. It may change by the time it's published. I'm due to have it to the publisher um, in March of 2024. And it should come out in the fall of 2024. So Amazing. Uh, yeah, I'm really excited to get that work out.
0: Oh, I look forward to reading it. Yeah. And you are a professor of medical anthropology. Would you mind explaining to the audience what exactly that is?
1: Well, in a nutshell, medical mm-hmm. anthropologists look at different aspects of, of health, healing, uh, culture. Um, around the world. Mm -hmm. So for example, I have many colleagues who have done their work on on HIV in Africa, for example. I have uh, other colleagues at University of Alabama who who take a more ecological kind of approach to um, studying biometrics, uh, urine, blood, those kinds of things in response to environmental stressors. Mm -hmm. My own work focuses on Lay perceptions of genetics. So what, what we think is genetically heritable, and how that's embedded in culture, and how that affects these things like the donation industry. Mm-hmm. Um, so how how eggs and sperm are transacted, who, why we value this this kind of a, a donor gamete more so than this one. Looking mm. at some of those ethical questions surrounding yeah. um, how we think about the marketability of eggs and sperm in these different social, social and cultural contexts.
0: And what inspired you to sort of go down this path? What was the What is your origin story?
1: Well, uh, it's interesting. I, when I was an undergraduate at Jose State for a while, I had this medical anthropology course. And all of a sudden, one day I had this epiphany, like just a light bulb literally went over my head. And I'm like, aha, I'm going to become a medical anthropologist. And someday I'm going to go to Iran and study a women's health issue in an Iranian village. That was sort of like in my head because I was... I had friends that were Persian speaking at the time. So I'm like, that's what I was going to do. And talk about your
0: manifestation. I mean,
1: that is specific. (laughs) I love it. It was like, yeah, it was like my path was laid out. Right. (gasps) And so um, I start, once I had that vision in my head, then I could finally start getting A's in my classes. you know. And then I kind of mapped out what my next step was going to be, which was ultimately to go to Berkeley. So that was like sort of in my sights. Mm. And um, when I was at Berkeley, still, we didn't have much ability to travel to Iran as a student or as a graduate student. Um, the visa situation was very difficult and I didn't have any contacts there. Yeah. Um, and so in the meantime I was working with Professor Gay Becker on her on her projects examining gender differences in response to infertility. So as part of that group, I was interviewing um, and the, her research focused only on married couples who were using who were going through infertility, using donor eggs, using donor sperm to create their families. And that was in about 1991. So I did that as a research assistant, and then people were calling up, women were calling up to participate in her study that were single or had a female partner and they were being um, turned away because um, they didn't fit the scope of the study demographic, which was heterosexual married couples, which was at the time, the definition of infertility was you had to be trying in a heterosexual relationship for a year or more in order to be able to even get a diagnosis. And so, I thought, A, it seemed a shame to me that people wanted to tell their stories and we had to turn them away. And B, I thought it would be a really interesting project because nobody had, at the time when I first started, nobody had done that yet. After that, people like Linda Kahn, she also was around the same time looking at lesbian families and, um, and so on. But at the time when I started the project, nobody had really done that. And so... As the outgrowth of her research, I started my own project looking at sperm donation among um, same same-sex female couples and and single women, and then a year after that, I got to go to Iran and study Afghan refugees after I got my PhD. But initially, uh, what started me on this path was Gay Becker, and and her projects on infertility.
0: Amazing, and why? And I and I and I. And so kind of going back to your, to your studies, because, um, you know, specifically, like right now you're studying egg donation in Spain and the United States. Mm-hmm, correct. Why those two countries? I mean, I, I know that you live in the United States, but but specifically why those two?
1: Well, one of the things that, so I had a number of Spanish colleagues and one of them came up to me at one of the conferences, Nancy Conblinka, and um, we started chatting and she had seen, I had done a, a I had done a sort of long, well, a short clip of my my film that I was working on, The Perfect Donor. Mm -hmm. And um, it's still in post-production. I'm still trying to fundraise to finish it. But
0: <laughs> yo I'm pitching my documentary as well I totally hear how that goes it's tough Yeah
1: yeah I have a 20 minute clip that I was showing at the conference and so she came back up to me afterwards and we started talking and I started realizing how different the landscape was in Spain from the United States And then I the following year in about 2015 I went to a medical conference in Spain I was invited to go present some of my work on egg donation there and in talking with some of the, the professionals there in the medical community and also in the anthropological community, it started dawning on me that the Spanish system is very, very different than the U.S. system. Mm-hmm. And it would make an interesting cultural comparison, not only to look at how we logically think about these two different systems and very, based in very different sort of philosophical, ethical mm-hmm. um, frameworks, but also one of the burning questions I had is, is egg donor care better in a more regulated system compared to an unregulated system or underregulated system like we have in the United States? Or is it different? And if so, how is it different? and how do women's decisions within these two different structures um, vary according to the, the cultural and medical and regulatory context?
0: in what way is Spain better regulated or more regulated than the United States yeah. I will you now Spain is a anonymous donor only which like as a donor conceived person I do not support but exactly I, I would love to know what what do you what do you mean by a more regula- regulated country
1: So as early as 1988, the Spanish fertility society and and the Spanish you know legal system uh, legislators, kind of came together, and they realized, okay, we've got assisted reproduction happening. We're using third-party gametes. How do we regulate this in a way that makes sense? And one of the things that was on their mind at the time is they didn't want to use the U.S. as a model, where things seemed, from a Spanish perspective, somewhat chaotic. Um, (laughs) To say the least. (laughs) <laughs> yes, And so they wanted sort of a reg a system that made sense that fit with their cultural and, and philosophical and ethical values that they could um, rally around and support to allow egg donation and sperm donation for for everyone, um, but in a, in a controlled way. And at the time, in the United States as well, anonymity, was pretty much the way everybody did it, right? Um, Many of the donors that I've spoken to and and most of the clinicians that I've spoken to still even, the the clinicians still say anonymity is best, but we know with ancestry testing, it can't be done anymore. Well, Spain has not yet gone down the ancestry testing path like we have Mm. here in the United States. So in Spain, well, let me backtrack again. So going back to the, the regulations, They really wanted to have as a system, as a country, a system that made sense and that fit with their ethical values. And so they came up with over several years, span of about from 1988 to then again, about 2006, that um, single women could have access to donor eggs and donor sperm. Lesbian couples could have access. Surrogacy was gonna be banned, which it still is um, for a variety of other reasons because they didn't want a surrogacy market. And they wanted to um, curtail the donor compensation to be so uh, only as like uh, to help with sort of the time and the trouble that it goes through and not be something that was going to entice a woman to donate eggs because she had economic hardship. It's not it's not a for profit it's not a for-profit for yeah. the donor. Mm-hmm. And even for the medical professionals, it's not as profit-driven. It's starting to become more so now because of the drive of private equity and venture capital into the medical market globally. Mm. But at the time, it was not. And so there was very much this, this desire to not be uh, commercially motivated, mm-hmm. which I completely think is a, makes makes sense i, I would agree the u.s market which is very commercially driven <laughs> yes. like you know basically like on steroids right oh I yeah mean, no it's, it's the, commercial. I, commercial yeah that that that's our bread and butter that's our foundational stones exactly yeah exactly so i was interested in these two things and, and then of course um the anonymity thing as you mentioned uh spain does require donor anonymity and also in spain Donors select, I mean, doctors or clinicians select the donor on behalf of the intended parent. So intended parents cannot choose their own donor. And the clinicians select donors based solely on the degree to which they match the recipient. So, you know, if I have blonde hair, blue eyes, my donor has to have blonde hair, blue eyes. If I'm type A positive blood, my donor has to be type A positive blood. And so they have a number of different sort of mechanisms within the clinical setting to ensure a phenotypic match between donor and recipient. And it's solely in the, physician, in the hands of the clinic. The, the intended parents never see a photograph. They never get any information about the donor. They might find out like, okay, she's a student or something like that. Yeah. But it's all very vague. And, and donors don't receive any information about the intended parents either because it's all under this yeah. anonymity. Now, of course, as you mentioned, um, as a donor conceived person that that is problematic. Yeah, and also for, for donors, that's also problematic yeah. as well. Like so for example, when I was interviewing donors over there um, and and surveying donors, even if they said they wanted to be anonymous on their survey, when I started talking to them, they, they would say things, well, actually, I'm really curious and I would be open to more information, you know, providing more information or I would be open to meeting them down the road or I mm-hmm. would be open to. So the way they thought about anonymity in conversation was very yeah. different than the way they answered on a questionnaire. Yeah. So I found that very interesting. And then most of the physicians, like the physicians here at the time, um, and even still, um, would say, well, if we get rid of anonymity, we're not going to have any more donors. And in fact, what my my data shows is that you might lose about five to ten percent, but not enough that's going to significantly impact, no. um, you know, your ability to 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 still have an industry, so to speak. And so, um, and it, so I, that, and I also
0: no no, and I I also very much I I very much believe that you will actually get the right donors, right. You will right. get donors who are actually even more of the, because because the, the fact that they're like, we don't want to overpay our donors because we don't want the finances to be an incentive because I understand they're trying to collect altruistic donors. Right. And if you, and when you take away anonymity, there is going to be a little bit more of a, you are going to be faced with a little bit more of what you did. And right. and, and I mean that in the best possible way. Right. And it does call upon more altruistic donors. Right. Because it's not to
1: be more thoughtful. You have to be more
0: thoughtful because you will meet your biological child. And there are so many people who I talk to who are like, I would love to be a donor, but anonymous donation really makes me uncomfortable.
1: Right. And those people can find a place Mm-hmm. Where they can do non-anonymous donation. I yeah. mean, obviously, in the United States, it's doable. In Spain, it's not. Yeah. In Spain, you can't even bring your sister in to be your known donor. Yeah, that's and so unfortunate. In Spain, if you want to use your sister to donate eggs for you, uh, you would actually have to go to the the hospital, the private hospital, the hospital or the clinic, and have your your sister be a donor to somebody else anonymously, and then that somebody else would find a donor for you anonymously. Mm. So it's like an exchange program, right? but yeah. it still has to be maintained anonymity. So I, I do find that piece to be problematic, yeah. um, but, you know, I'm there to, I'm there to to sort of make observations and not of to pass course. judgments um, of course, as an anthropologist, but, and on the other hand, um, you know, and one of the things that I see with the fact that the donor selection process is in the hand of, of the clinics, instead of being in the hands of the intended parents is that it completely removes that commodification of human eggs in, in that regard. So when you have intended parents that are saying, Oh, I want somebody who has, you know, a Harvard education, who plays volleyball, who has blue eyes, and they're willing to pay more for that. Right. Mm. Um, you can't do that in Spain. And so when you have the, the intended parents as the selectors, they're consumers. And then the eggs and the donor become a product that they're paying for rather than, um, an, an, a donation that's going to help them, you know, it, it becomes something different. And so, um, and this is something I'll be talking about in my book. Exactly how how this consumer consumerism in the American market yeah, the really drives a cured market in human eggs, where some people are, are considered to have more reproductive value than others.
0: Uh, I guess my my worry and my question, and I'm and I'm looking at this, and and the only reason why this would concern me is because obviously I, you know, understanding the history of the United States, I guess yeah. my concern would be is, would that allow agencies to be partnering recipient parents and donors with, I would say, more malicious eugenic intents? Well, I mean, that's happening anyway. You, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it is. I, I mean- guess that would, that would worry me is, why are they, that, that would be my concern.
1: No, and that's a legitimate concern, and, and it's also, I think, something that's already happening. I mean, if if I look at m- in my data, and again, this is going to be in my book, but if I look at my quantitative data mm-hmm. on how much donors were paid by race, okay, so I can see Asian donors and, and select white donors, their highest compensation is like, in my in my data, is about $50,000, $60,000, The highest I've heard is $250,000 for one cycle with a Chinese-American donor at MIT. Right. Wow. And if you look at, for example, Hispanic and Black donors, their highest paid cycles are are about $12,000. So there's a huge gap a huge pay gap between the highest paid of uh black and hispanic donors compared to white and asian donors which already represents some of the discrepancies we have in, in compensation for other aspects of you know work in in the united states and so you do see these these eugenic kinds of things happening yeah. anyway and if i look at the the median compensation the average compensation the average compensation for black and hispanic and donors is between like 7 to 8000 whereas the average compensation for white and um and um asian donors in my study is about 10 to 12000 so you and I, I don't have equal representative samples of all groups mm-hmm. but it does show you some trends of um some of the concerns that, you know, we see how these kinds of, of um, structures operate in the society and egg donation sort of magnifies yeah. all the things that are already problematic regarding equity.
0: Well, I also think it's harder. It's, I would assume it's a lot harder for you to to get equal representation because when it comes to black donors, there are not many.
1: And which why? Is- and because why? they're not being compensated. <laughs> they're not being enticed to the same degree as, you know, you see all the time advertisements, you know, Asian donor needed $50,000, blah, 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 or higher. At the mm-hmm. How how often have you seen, you know, black donor needed $100,000? You don't see it,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, and so there's no equity in terms, of, not that that's a good thing in either case, but you know what I'm saying is that you don't yeah. see, um, the enticements to recruit donors the same for those groups as you do for these groups. And then of course, African-American women and Hispanic women who want donors yeah. who look like them have a harder time, you know, finding donors because they're not being incentivized to the same degree as other donors are to be recruited into the industry in the first place. Then also for, especially for black women, there's, you know, um, and rightfully so a long history of, um problems within the medical system of experiencing racism in the medical system. Well and so especially when,
0: you when we talk add about that to a
1: medical procedure, yeah. you know, it's there could be some legitimate concerns about even entering into that system as a patient. Absolutely.
0: So, well, especially yeah. when we go into like the history of gynecology or anything. Right. I mean, we we have entered into, you know, the fifth circle of hell when we come to the history right. of black women and this particular um uh medical industry. Um and it's also what one of the observations that I've seen is the fertility industry in terms of the doctors is it is primarily a white industry. It is run right. by white doctors. You go to an ASRM conference, um, for anybody who doesn't know what that is, ASRM is the American Society of Reproductive Medicine. They constitute the guidelines for the clinics and and banks to follow, not regulations, guidelines. So they are optional. But you go to an ASRM conference and you're going to look around and you'll be like, oh, there's not a lot of diversity. I see a lot of mayonnaise. It is not a welcoming environment to anyone of color.
1: In fact, last year, I believe, because I've gone the last four or five, four or five years, and last year was one of the first times, last year and the year before. The year before, I went to a reproductive justice uh, working group at the ASRM, but it wasn't sort of a public group. Mm -hmm. It wasn't part of the, it was, you know, there were predominantly black physicians and so on in this reproductive justice group, and they were trying to sort through, you know, why is it so hard to find a black egg donor, for example, Mm -hmm. or sperm donor. Um, and so they were raising some of those concerns two years ago. And so and at this last ASRM meeting in, uh, 2022, October, 2022, mm-hmm. uh, was the first time that I have seen anyone speak about reproductive justice in the context of an ASRM meeting. And that was Valerie Montgomery Rice, a physician who gave the plenary Congress at the ASRM. And I was very, very pleasantly, obviously, um, Surprised that, like, oh, finally! But then again, like, well, reproductive justice has been talked been been talked about for decades, and yeah. now it's finally twenty twenty three. But at least there was a platform for the, having these kinds of discussions about, you know, race yeah. and medicine and justice. So well, um, that was very inspiring to see see her her plen- plenary congress uh, lecture.
0: I I, I ag- agree. It is it is good that we're taking these steps. I do think that unfortunately. It's because ASRM's hand is sort of being forced due to genetic testing, because there's Uh, been so much that has been unveiled in the last five, 10 years, because we I mean, we're only at 17 percent of the United States population has taken a commercial DNA test. And look what we've already found. Right. Right. Yeah. And I I, I do think that it is ASRM trying very hard to go, oh, shit, let's get ahead of it, which Uh I think they need to do. I think that they there is way more steps, and they should go way farther than what they're doing. But I do think it is because their their hand is getting forced, in my personal well, opinion.
1: Well, and especially when it comes to donor conception, you know, there was the uh, – was it the Donor Conceived Council and the Right to Know Groups are starting to really push the ASRM mm-hmm. to um, address issues surrounding, you know – open identity donation, the Colorado bill, which people were very upset about. Some people were very upset about, but some people were overjoyed about that, um, you know, to uh, that essentially banned um, anonymous donation in the state of Colorado. That was last year. And so I think the industry is seeing these social changes taking place driven by donor conceived people. And they're saying, oh, we need to do something about this. So, you know, I was part of that group that uh, the stakeholders meeting in Los Angeles that we had prior to the ASRM conference, and then the conference, and and so on. And and now the ASRM has actually got a committee to look at um, donor anonymity and um, and open identity, and to start to explore these issues, including the the perceptions of the, the um, including donor-conceived people,
0: which which is great. Um, right. I will, I will say, um, they, they need to step it up a little bit. Uh, cause wow. right now we, we, we aren't even in like an amuse-bouche territory. We're sort of like still talking about the menu and it's like, right. guys, like, uh, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm, I'm getting a little tired. I would say of the industry referring to us as angry DCP. And it's like, right. oh, that's a little gaslighty, guys. Thank you so much. You know, right. y- you know, it's not like
1: we're dying or anything. Right. Right. Well, yeah, I mean that is true the, the more needs to be done yeah and the the door is opening somewhat it's like here when it needs to be here right yeah. so at least these conversations are st- are starting to take place i i can imagine I, one would be justly uh annoyed by being labeled angry anything especially yeah. you know, and even if somebody was angry well they have the right to be angry. We have oh. the we have
0: very good reason to be angry. Yeah, I believe that anger exactly. is actually the understandable response given what many of us have gone through and discovered. Right. But I yeah. would love to bring us uh, back to egg donation because a big reason why I specifically wanted to have you on was yes. as somebody who operates so much on social media, uh, specifically on TikTok, I see consistently all the time Cryobanks and clinics recruiting donors, and they're doing little dancey videos and showing like, sell your eggs, buy a Prada bag, or literally, um, you know, pay for your spring break with donations uh, by being a donor. And I see this consistently, and I see 15-year-old girls going like, oh my God, I'm gonna do this when I'm older. Um, And there's no context. It's so, I mean, sugar-coated isn't even the correct word. It's just, To me, it is just flat out misleading of what being a donor, and I hate the word donor because you're getting compensated
1: extraordinarily well in the United States. But- yeah, but I actually have a, a pushback on that, please, because because in medical language, donor and recipient only mean the the body that's coming from versus the body that is going to. Mm-hmm. So you can it doesn't have the same lay meaning as altruistic, you know, like as we have in mm-hmm. in in. in sort of our lay language of meaning altruistic or philanthropic. So donor in the medical context is like just the person something's coming from, whether it's blood, sperm, eggs, bone marrow, whatever. And so how I like to think about it actually is compensated or paid donation versus unpaid donation. Mm. So I still think that, that the, the term donation works when you think about it in terms of how things are medically defined. But if you start to put, the more social definitions that we use in the general population about philanthropy, then obviously it doesn't work. So, so for a while, I was saying egg provider, and then I started thinking about it. And then I looked up, well, I wonder, I wonder what donation means in a medical dictionary. And so then I kind of came back to like, okay, well I'm going to talk about it this way as compensated or paid donation Mm -hmm. as opposed to, um, yeah. But anyway. So,
0: and, and it's a big reason why I wanted to bring you on was talking about side effects and right. what egg donors go through and what it actually means to be an egg donor. Yeah. Because the way that right. so many of these clinics and cryobanks are presenting being an egg donor is solve all your problems through egg donation. It's like they, they make it sound like you yeah. are... I don't know. Like it, it, they make it sound like you're you're chopping off an inch of your hair and handing it over. They make it sound yeah. as simple and easy and straightforward and flowery as possible,
1: exactly. and
0: it really it one adds to just the commodification, which I I can't stand because they're literally se- they're literally comparing a, um, donor-conceived people to a handbag. It's perpetuating right. the commodification, and these kids have no idea what they are entering into so i would love to just start from square one just so that everybody so we can just walk through it very very simply is what is the process of egg donation because we we all know the process of sperm donation it's quite simple they can donate sperm in their car it's a very simple process what may so lead us through okay medically what egg donation is
1: okay so once a donor goes through the screening process and makes it through and is accepted into a donation pro- program, um, if she's doing a, a, the, the process might vary a little bit, whether depending upon whether she's doing what's called a fresh donation, mm-hmm. meaning an intended parent is ready and waiting to receive the eggs from that donor for a cycle right now versus a frozen donation, meaning that those eggs are going to be frozen and then distributed later or used later. So if you're doing a fresh donation and you have to sync your cycle with the cycle of an intended mother or or a gestational surrogate, as is often the case too, you first start off on birth control pills to sync the the two cycles so that you can match up when each individual will be ovulating so that when the embryo transfer goes, the recipient is ready to receive it, right, Mm -hmm. in terms of – her body. So after you do the birth control pills for, I think it's usually about a, two or a, a several weeks, then you will start on hormone injections and you'll be giving injections to yourself daily. So there's a daily hormone injection and what those hormones do. So normally in a given month you ovulate and one egg goes through, right? But your ovaries contain what's called follicles. So each ovary has a bunch of follicles, Right. And the number of follicles vary from month to month. They vary uh, from woman to woman, and they vary throughout your age. Once you hit menopause, you don't have anymore. Right? So, when you go, when the the physician uh, in your some of your initial testing will do what's called an uh, ultrasound, transvaginal ultrasound, and they'll they'll look to see how many follicles are in each of your ovaries, and that's called your resting antral count. And so what that physician will do is they'll say, okay, I see she's got about 10 in this ovary and about 10 in this ovary. I'm going to give her this dose, dosage of injections to try to get as many as we can and hopefully without without causing harm to the donor. Mm-hmm. So, but that number of follicles, remember, can vary. Mm-hmm. Some people might have 10 follicles and some people might, you might see 40 because they have what, like Polycystic ovarian syndrome, or something. Mm-hmm. So, in any case, they do the the ultrasound, uh, the transvaginal ultrasound. They they see how many follicles you have, and then they try to decide your dosages, your hormone protocol based upon um, how many your your levels, your AMH levels, your ultrasound, your um, your follicle count, resting interfollicle count, and other things. So, then for a period of a, a couple of weeks, you'll be taking those hormone injections, and then. About 48 hours before you're due to ovulate or before you're due to believe, have the egg retrieval, you take what's called a trigger shot. Now, the trigger shot can either be HCG combined with HCG and often Lupron or peporellin, uh, which which is called a GNRHA agonist, mm-hmm. or it can just be an agonist trigger like Lupron. Mm-hmm. Um, in my own data... I've seen that donors with HCG in their trigger shots have a much higher rate of ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome, which is a potentially life-threatening condition that Mm -hmm. could put you in the hospital or could kill you. I have five donors in my study who almost died from ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome and were hospitalized for five days to longer. Um, In my study, I have about... I I don't have the data in front of me. I think 15% of the donors in my study had had... Severe ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome on at least one cycle, and doctors will often say that it never happens. That we use a Lupron trigger, you won't get it. But if you have a high number of eggs, in like your over most recent eggs,
0: article, you uh, interviewed 420 egg donors, and 289 of the respondents had um, were overstimulated.
1: No, not that, it wasn't the 289. It was a portion of that 289. Hold on, let's one see second. where's the article. So. 26% had moderate OHSS on one cycle or more, 45% had none, 9% had severe on one cycle or more, and 1.8% had um, uh, critical, which meant they were hospitalized. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then I broke it down in this graph by by trigger type and 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 number of eggs produced, and I can see that donors that produced greater than 20 eggs per cycle were at a much higher risk of OHSS than donors who had fewer eggs per cycle. Um, And that risk was increased if they had any HCG in the trigger. Now, for some reason, some doctors are still using HCG triggers in their donors. Um, There's some belief out there that uh, the HCG trigger improves embryo quality, which has also been just disproven by other (laughs) studies. So, a lot of it's sort of personal preference by the physician, mm-hmm. but yes. Yeah, so the egg donation process involves several weeks of taking hormone injections, and then when it comes to the retrieval, 48 hours after the retrieve after the trigger shot, the donor will go uh, into you know will have surgery usually under anesthesia to remove the the eggs from the follicles, mm-hmm. the oocytes from the follicles, and that process, like I said, is usually under anesthesia. They take a transvaginal, they they take a um, ultrasound-guided needle, Mm -hmm. they poke it up through the uh, vaginal canal to reach the ovary, and it pierces each of the follicles in the one ovary to to get all the eggs, and then goes up to the other ovary, again, through the vaginal canal to pierce through all the other Mm -hmm. um, follicles to retrieve the eggs. And that process usually takes about 30 minutes. Okay. Thank Did you. I explain
0: that well. <laughs> you know, that was so beautifully orchestrated. Like um I've I've obviously been walked through the process many times, but I have to say that was my favorite. I thank you. That oh, was wonderful. <laughs> um so uh piggybacking uh, uh so to piggyback off of what you just said in cuz you mentioned screenings, um because the biggest question that I get all the time was what are legally egg donors screened for versus sperm donors? Number one question I get all the time. Legally? Yes. So we're not talking about ASRM guidelines. We're not talking about bank policy. We're talking about regulations.
1: I don't know that there's much of a difference there. Um, Have you heard otherwise?
0: Nope. It is STDs and that is it.
1: Yeah, I think STDs, which which sperm donors get screened for too, mm-hmm. by the FDA. A lot yeah. of egg donors get screened for. You know, some places do genetic testing, some places don't. But there's um, no regulation. That is all purely no regulation up on yeah. It's all there's up no to bank saying, policy. This has to be done. That has to be done. No, but but most clinics are going to do. Uh, they're going to test for STDs. They're going to test for some sort of carrier. They'll do some some mm-hmm. sort of basic carrier screening. For example, if um, but if but the again, it's it's not Jewish, regulated. They might test for Tay Sachs. I'm sorry,
0: but again, it's not it's not regulated. This isn't um, a this is not a a law. This is purely this is ASRM guidelines, which again are fully optional. Um, Because this is a big misunderstanding that I think general I would say society has is they really think that egg donors are absolutely 100 percent like they have to be screened more legally than sperm donors are. And it's a big misconception that a lot of people have.
1: Yeah, no. I mean, the the medical screening is the medical screening and it's going to be down to sort of, is this person going to pass on a disease or not? Okay. (laughs) Um, and obviously you don't want to have, um, STDs, um, for a variety of, of reasons. I'm not exactly, but in any case, um, for both, for both groups, but, and even for both groups, they do most standards of practice from what I've seen from clinic to clinic. Um, most do some, they do blood tests. They do, uh, sometimes they do genetic counseling. So they'll, they'll, the genetic counselor might walk them through, okay, did your father have this? Did your grandfather have that? Did your grandmother have this? Blah, 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 that kind of thing. And most do want to do some sort of screening because they want the intended parents to feel like, okay, I've got a good donor. I've, I've got somebody who's healthy. Mm-hmm. So, um, but you know, like in one case, I a genetics, a genetics counselor that I interviewed told me um, that intended parents that she talks to would much rather have a donor with a family history of cancer than a donor with a family history of ADHD. Because cancer is something that's going to happen down the road that maybe there'll be a cure for, whereas ADHD is going to be something that you have to deal with as a parent.
0: (laughs) Okay. I don't really know how to unpack that one. All right. Exactly. exactly. Uh, All right.
1: That's one of the very interesting... you know. Um, you know, and especially when you look at sort of neurodivergence and, yeah. and ADHD is part of neurodivergence, there's a lot of of people with ADHD that have a lot of skills that do really good things in the world. So it's yeah. really interesting to me that that is considered to be more problematic than, than you know, cancer, cancer? Which is lethal. But in okay. any case.
0: <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. Um... It's interesting, as somebody yeah. who is currently in the process of uh, getting an ADHD diagnosis. Thank you so much, recipient parent. Well, I, <laughs>
1: yeah, lovely to yeah, know I, that. I, I, I uh, supposedly have ADHD too, so go figure. Yeah. You know? <laughs> okay. yeah Sure, so the was a pain in the ass for my parents, but here I am on your podcast. But Luckily, here you I are, done. you know, changing the game and doing incredible <laughs>
0: research. Um, right. Okay, so then. So then if we, so basically, again, we're sort of just mapping out, I'm going to say like the egg donor plane for everybody. So there's no regulations in terms of donor screening, which may, which means that it's going to be inconsistent depending, like you go to one clinic, one cryobank, they're going to, they're each going to do different things. Um, My next question would be how much, I know that you're certainly doing this but i would say beyond yourself how much research has been done on short term and long term side effects
1: of being an egg donor not much <laughs> <laughs> i think and i think uh that there's a handful uh, i what's her um trying to figure out people's names i think kawas i, can't, I don't know how to pronounce her last name k a w a s s she did a survey on egg donors um, let me see. I'm googling her right now. Oh, da, 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 da. Jennifer Kawas did a survey on egg donors. Oh gosh, I can't believe these things aren't at the top, uh, at the top of my head. You're
0: doing great. You are you are nailing it. <laughs>
1: I I don't expect <laughs> everybody to have all of
0: this stuff on. That I have my notes out right now.
1: Okay, you kidding me? Normally, I would have this like boom off the top of my head, but here now I have to look at my own um, my own articles to find out who I cited. (laughs) I love that. Okay, K A W A S S. So, yeah, from a medical standpoint, in terms of looking at the risks for egg donors, there are not very many uh, studies out there. Uh, One study by Jennifer Kalwas looks at trends and outcomes for donor oocytes in the United States from 2000 to 2010. Um, I believe uh, they found, again, somewhat higher OHSS rates than the the 1% that's usually cited by medical Mm. doctors during the informed consent process for donors. Mm. Um, And uh, Kenny also did uh, donors, donors retrospective evaluations of their motivations, expectations, and experiences um, during the donation cycle. So I know of about a handful of people who, are specific, who have specifically looked at the medical um, aspects somewhat, mm-hmm. but not any real long-term studies, especially with the volume of, of donors, the number of donors that I have. I haven't seen any U.S. studies with that have been that detailed in terms of looking at short and long-term risks for egg donors. And the long-term risks is really difficult to, to yeah. look at um, and to, you know, with any kind of um, insurance that it's going to be accurate because, you know, I can say, okay, I have five egg donors in my study that had cancer mm-hmm. within three you know, one to 10 years post-donation. Well, yeah. one year post-donation, that is a little suspicious. Yeah. Um, but 10 years, they, who's to say they wouldn't have had yeah. that cancer anyway? Yeah. Um, I can say for example, one of the donors in my study, actually somebody I interviewed for my, my my film as well. She donated three times starting at age 26 and shortly during her third cycle or she discovered she had um, a growth on her cervix. and then after her third cycle, um, she about a year after she fought, she didn't have medical insurance. So she didn't go to the doctor right away, but then she started bleeding. And she discovered finally by going to the doctor that she had cervical cancer. And that was within a year, she was diagnosed within about a year, year and a half of having been an egg donor. And and the strange thing about her cervical cancer was that her own doctor told her that that specific kind of cancer would only be found in an 80 year old. And even then it's extremely rare. So her own doctor, told her that he thought that the hormones that she had taken as an egg donor contributed to her cervical cancer. So she had to have um, the tumor removed. She was told she was never going to be able to have her own children. And, um, and so she you know, had three other families out there that had, had bio, her biological children, and she was told she was never going to be able to have any. Now, miraculously, the positive, uh, positive to the story is that after her surgery to remove the the cancer i guess it opened up her cervix enough mm-hmm. to where she went on a vacation with her boyfriend and conceived and did have a child but she was not able to deliver bless you. she was not able to deliver vaginally because her uh- cervix was so scarred it, it couldn't dilate and that was likely the only child she would ever have
0: so, so i assume um, then it was like a c section
1: yes she had a c section
0: um so so, yeah i mean no, I've heard lots of anecdotal, yes, lots of anecdotal stories about does egg donation cause cervical cancer. That is right. something that you you have heard there, and there, I would say at least in my in my groups, there's been enough whispers of it that it would be something that like I would really love to see more of, like a bigger study on it, right? Um because obviously you know that that's a that's a pretty big side effect
1: right and that's, that's and that's actually one of the things like in my study, you know I have I have it set up so that if somebody enters you know the study on my website egg org or egg you go to the website, you click join the study, right and it'll take you through a, a, a few filtering questions. So if somebody had been an egg donor, mm-hmm. if, for if they have, or are just about to start their first egg donation, if they have frozen their eggs, um, so I'm doing egg freezing as well. And if they've already participated in an earlier survey mm-hmm. and want to update their information. So there's four different surveys Love depending that. upon where people are. Um, and so if somebody's already taken my egg donor survey, they can go back, you know, a year later, two years later, and take an updated survey that will follow up from where they left off before. So it'll be a new survey on if they have anything to report regarding medical changes since taking the prior survey. And then if I can get enough pre-donation donors, right? And then start Mm -hmm. following them through for 10 years. So I've got it set up so that I can do that. I just need the funding to be able to do that. And the funding is the the big piece because several years ago, I contacted a program officers at the National Institutes of Health um, and specifically the fertility sector as well as other sections. And I was told by the fertility section uh, Program officer, what do egg donors have to do with infertility? They don't have anything to do with infertility. It doesn't make sense, you know what you want to do. Are you serious? I am serious. You- so there's li- literally no incentive to even provide funding to examine this question when it co- in in the NIH because it's not on their on their radar of things. Oh my to examine. god.
0: What do egg donors have to do with? Infer- okay, yeah, sure. Okay, he literally told me egg donors have nothing to do with infertility. Yeah, and what do flat? What does flour have to do with baking? I don't know.
1: Um, <laughs> exactly. Okay. He said, "Well, you know, many of the some of the egg donors in my study have gone on to experience their own infertility later," and he's like, "Well, then that's a different study." <laughs> <And> I'm like, <gasps> "We're having some okay. cognitive dissonance here." Yeah, well, exactly. It, it really it just comes down to I think. um, There's just a lack of incentive of wanting to do that kind of research as far as the industry. Well, it it will not be profitable for the the industry. industry. That will end up, you know, deterring women from donating eggs more than mandatory non-anonymity. Absolutely, (laughs) that will. Um, yeah. But let's keep going. Let's let's keep talking
0: about right. about side effects. Um, and for everybody, um, I will be dropping some uh, some of these links because right now I'm, I'm looking right now uh, at what you did with Science Direct um, alignment between expectations, experience of egg donors. What does it mean to be informed, um, right. which was extremely interesting because it was all about informed consent. And right. I would love to in your in your findings, what are the short term and long term side effects that doctors are warning their patients of, what are the side effects that you feel like they're not really warning of? And and if you can go into sort of those percentages um, of informed consent, I would love for you to do that.
1: Okay. Um, So across the board, most of the donors I've spoken to and most of the donors who have taken my survey, and now it's at about a thousand, so substantially more than when I wrote that, Mm -hmm. those articles, but um, I'm still analyzing that data. But in most cases, donors tell me that when they sign the informed consent form, they're counseled through the process, Mm -hmm. right? They can receive some, and they might be told, you know, that there's risks of ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. And then when they ask, okay, well, what is that? What's what's this OHSS thing? What does that mean? They'll be told, oh, you don't have to worry about it. The risks are less than 1%. It's not going to happen to you. And so that's the main thing uh, that, oh. that so you have this informed consent, but the informed consent is sort of taken away yeah. in that process of counseling because they're told not to worry about the thing they're being informed about. Yeah, that
0: doesn't sound like so informed consent. That sounds like I'm informed sorry? consent with an asterisk.
1: It's, it's disinformed consent. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that, that's yeah. not. So, so you put this sheet out there because they have to cover their bases, mm-hmm. but in the counseling process, if a donor expresses concern or a prospective donor expresses concern, she's told not to be concerned about that. So that's the number one is, is that the informed consent really needs to be more informed and, and uh, yeah. So that's the, the main challenge right there. And then when it comes to the long-term risks, they often are told things like there's no evidence of any long-term risk. No studies show any long-term risks for donors. Well, how many studies have been done on long-term risks for donors? I believe we covered that of saying um, not many, zero. Yeah, because even I haven't looked substantially at the long-term risks yet because of the you know the amount of work and the amount of funding it'll take to do that. Yeah. So when it comes to long-term risks, we really don't know anything because there's no data out there, and so absence of evidence does not mean absence of mm-hmm. of a problem. So, um, so, yeah, so the, the informed consent process, whether it's for short term or long term risks, is really problematic and it, and it actually operates to sort of smooth over the donor's concerns rather than um, give her truly informed consent that tells her. Yeah, some studies show that 12% of donors may get it. Maybe get um, ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. But here's what we're going to do to try to prevent that. You know, mm-hmm. we're going to give you an agonist trigger rather than than one, one, one with HCG. And this is what that means. We're going to aim for 20 eggs rather than 40. You know, and this is what that means. And so I'm hoping that you know my other article on, on um, ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome mm-hmm. and egg donors. I'm hoping that that will actually I'm hoping that some people in the medical community will actually read that and say, oh, yeah, this is a problem. I'm going to make sure to sort of look at my protocol, look at my my um, OHSS rates and my donors and see if there's any way I can make an adjustment to make it more comfortable for them Um, to all of my
0: listeners. I will have all of the links that uh, all of the articles and everything within the caption. So it's all there for you to read. I highly, highly suggest that you do read it. Um. One of the things when reading the the article that really kind of, I, like, I knew this happened, but seeing it in black and white in your article, the fact that there are so many clinics and cryobanks um, that after the donor would be overstimulated for a cycle, they would continue retrieving eggs for more cycles. I, I would yes. have, that to me was very shocking as to going like, if you overstimulated your egg, you don't use that egg donor anymore. Exactly. That just puts them in
1: danger. Well, yeah. And my data shows in that OHSS article, it shows that if you had OHSS one time, moderate or or higher, you are 35%, you have a 35% more likelihood of having severe OHS again. So if you've had it once, you should not ever donate again. And I've got like some donors in my study that have done between 10 and 19 cycles. One donor did 10 cycles after having had severe OHSS that landed her in the hospital for a week where she almost died, she still donated again because the clinic contacted her or the agency contacted and said, Oh, we've got somebody who wants to do a sibling cycle. You know, because they already have a, have a baby with a child with your eggs. They they want a sister or brother. Can you please come back again? And so this donor felt like she couldn't say no because she has sisters and brothers and she knows how much they mean to them. That is so
0: irresponsible.
1: So it's the emotional manipulation in some places that that like brings them back in and makes it so they can't they can't say no. They they feel they feel guilty if they say no because they put themselves there are many donors that I'm finding, I mean it's individual to individual, but of I'm course. finding that many are highly empathic. And so they put themselves in mm-hmm. the shoes of the intended parent rather than thinking about themselves first. Yeah. And so, and and the industry supports that empathy, and they they feed the empathy rather than um, saying, "Oh." you know, you need to take care of yourself first. And that's one of the things that I see happening um, is, and it starts from the moment of recruitment all the way through subsequent cycles. You know, the moment of recruitment, the donor is being told, Oh, this is such a great thing you're doing for somebody else. You know, Oh, this is a win-win you're helping somebody, but you know, you're getting some help with your student loan debt at the Mm -hmm. same time or whatever, you know? Um, And they flash all those, like you were talking about the TikTok ads earlier, buy a purse, go on vacation. Yeah. And, the data that I was just analyzing for my book, rarely do U.S. donors use much of the compensation that they receive for things like um, handbags or vacations or luxury items. The majority of the donors in, in in the United States use the compensation for debt, student loan debt, credit card debt, tuition debt. Very rarely is it for anything superfluous, like like anything like a car or or, you know, like I said, a purse or things like
0: that, and then it kind of goes into there. There's again, I have like ten thousand questions right now, but and it also to me, it's so you're preying upon people because as as you certainly well know, you have these clinics and cryobanks go set up pop up tents, yeah, at these college campuses where they know these kids are. I mean, I understand they're eighteen years old, but I'm sorry, that's still a kid.
1: I had one donor. That she started looking into it at 16. So the, um, she's probably one of your TikTok people that you're talking about and finally donated at 17 with her mom's permission. Are you serious? Mm hmm. 17. She's not even old enough to make, to sign a legal contract yet.
0: Oh my God. How is a
1: 17 year old able to, to make that decision? Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. It's it, like, to me, it's just predatory.
0: And, uh, you know, for me, I, I referred it's egg poaching,
1: which, you know, it is. it's, yeah, it's, poached egg. it's a go. poached egg. And you are Actually, egg, one, you. one of the, one of the chapters in my book is called poached. So <laughs> yeah, yes, <laughs> but, um, but yeah. And, then that, and that's another thing I see with the Spanish system that, that I fully agree with that we do not have here in the Spanish system by law, they cannot may have any advertisements a clinic an egg bank cannot have any advertisements with a dollar amount in there Good. and they are absolutely prohibited from recruiting on college campuses uh, they can't have advertisements at college campuses or um, any of it
0: that is speaking oh that is a game changer right there yep oh my yep. god that is that is that is that is a dream right there
1: yep yep now the main mechanism of recruiting in spain is you know a donor comes in, she finds out about it, and then she brings her friends. Mm. And she might get a little incentive, like a little bonus for bringing her friends for each of the friend that she brings in. So there's a little. there's not always you know. Perfect.
0: We're not 100 perfect, but it's. I will say it is better. Right. That is a lot better. I would prefer. Oh oh my god! But that is yeah. That's. Yeah. Oh, that's so much better. And I
1: would love to see legislation like that pass here. No college campus advertisements no college campus visits yeah. and and no money associated with the advertisements. I think those would be three key things. And then you would shift the ground mm-hmm. as to, you know, in terms of who's donating and 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 how and what brings them to the table, so to speak. Um yeah.
0: Well, speaking of hyperstimulation. Yeah. Um in your findings, cuz we we talked about how many of your you know, in your in your group um have been overstimulated are yeah other countries having similar statistics where are you finding like similar like you know you have this percentage of donors getting overstimulated in the United States is it um is there an equivalent finding in Spain or wherever else you have done your studies
1: well that is a, a challenge to get that information because okay. in most other countries nobody's tracking it either um in Spain i believe they're tracking it in Spain they do have a registry the registry is to track the, the number of live births per donor and mm-hmm. the number of cycles per donor, but not to connect donor and offspring, obviously. Mm-hmm. But, um, but in any case, from, from my own observations in Spain, I'm seeing lower stimulation than here. Okay. Um, I did see one retrieval of, with a donor who had been stimulated to produce 48 eggs um, in one cycle, which is quite high. Uh, I wasn't able to follow up with her afterwards to find out if she was okay, um, unfortunately, because I really would have liked to have been able to follow up with her. But for the most part, you know, from the clinical, like, so in Spain, I was able, I was given access in the clinic. Um, they would just send me their donors. And I was very grateful to have, um, you know, a couple of clinics had an office set up for me that I was able to sort of, the donors would come into me, you know, and talk to me. And, and 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 that's a different kind of filtering system than, yeah. than the way I recruited donors uh, in the U.S. sample. So potentially, uh, I was. It, it could be that the clinics I was working in had better practices mm-hmm. because if you have better practices, you're not going to be feel challenged by somebody coming in and observing your practices. Right. Um, But in any case, so most of the clinics that I was involved with in Spain, I did see more, more conservative. I did see happier donors. So I didn't get as many complaint donors that had uh, complained about problems Uh post-donation. There might've been out of 127, there might've been a handful, but um, so, and they do, they, they do use a lower, they do use different protocols there. But again, in Spain, I think, and here as well, um, I think this the, the shift away from private clinics to um, private equity-funded venture capitalist-backed clinics is causing a shift in business practices within the clinic mm-hmm. to be more on okay, we we need more eggs because more eggs equals more dollars or more euros, as the case may be. So I think that the the egg freezing and the shift towards um, private equity VC-backed mm-hmm. clinics where you're getting these large global groups is really having an impact on clinical practice. That's sort of my hypothesis that I'm working right now as I'm working through this, this book, but um, just what I see. But also in Spain, they reported the national averages, I think in 2020 Mm -hmm. of uh, eggs produced per cycle is 16. Whereas in my data, uh, the average number of eggs produced per cycle is 25 with a low of like five or six and a high of 80. And you're,
0: and you're referring to the United States with that one
1: in my, in my U S data. Yeah.
0: Now. Okay. The fantastic. Okay. Um, so, so kind of piggybacking off off of that, um, there is an ASRM guideline that says that you should only be doing six cycles of donations. And it doesn't seem like clinics and cryobanks are sticking to that guideline Why would it, in your medical opinion, be important? Why is it important to stick to those six cycles? And how often are you seeing clinics and cryobanks not following that ASRM guideline?
1: Good questions. Okay. So it's important. Every cycle you do is exposure to risk. So, yeah, you might be able to get away with it 19 times, like one of the donors in my study did, 19 times. You might be able to, but you don't know what the long-term ramifications are going to be or even the short-term ramifications. And, like, what some of the things that I've seen in my study, you know, I can have a donor that – in my, in my survey, I'm asking, I'm asking some of the medical information for each cycle, mm-hmm. okay? So I'm – Collecting per cycle data. So she might have had no problem cycles one, two, three, four, and five. And then all of a sudden, cycle six gets hyperstimulated, gets ovarian torsion, has to have an ovary removed, you know, or what have you, and, and has a, a huge problem. So every single cycle, you're setting your risk factor all over again. And there's some, there's some possibility, and I allude to this in the OHSS article, that your body, that a person's body, after doing repeat cycles like that, might be becoming more sensitive to the medications potentially or something mm. and be at increased risk with each cycle that they do. So six cycles seems to be sort of what the ASRM is saying in terms of, you know, potential unknown risks. Um, And then also the concerns are consanguinity, you know, with egg donors or sperm donors, not having too many offspring from a single donor that might meet and end up, you know, having a relationship, which is obviously a huge concern for donor conceived people.
0: We would like to turn down that banjo music. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then your second question was. Medically, number of cycles.
0: Uh, my was how often are you seeing clinics and banks uh, go past that ASRM guideline of six cycles only?
1: Right, um, I see some clinics. You know, this is again, this is coming from the donor side, the mm-hmm. donor's perspective, but also I've talked to a, lot, a number of professionals and so on as well. So some clinics adhere pretty well to that guideline. Okay, um, they might push for a seventh cycle for a sibling cycle, for example, but Mm. most of the ASRM, you know, branded whatever clinics are kind of sticking to that guideline pretty much. But I do see a substantial number of donors. And again, Oh, I have the data right here. Hold on a second. I do see a substantial number of donors doing beyond the six. Mm -hmm. So I can actually, pull up my chapter that I'm working on Well, right now. Also
0: in the United States, there isn't a like donor registry. So you can have a donor go to one clinic and maybe that clinic will do six cycles, exactly. but then they can hop to the other. Exactly.
1: So, um, so average number of cycles that I have in my data is uh 3.3 3 for us donors, but the range is one to one to 19. Um, do I have how many 19. have gone? Oh, it's in the other article. Sorry. So, but I do, but I do have, again, a lot of donors that, 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 that do that seven, seven, eight, nine, ten, 10 up to 19 cycles. And um, is it widespread practice? Uh, probably more widespread than we would like. Um, obviously f- um, from the clinical standpoint, screening a donor is expensive. Yeah, They have to do all the blood tests. They have to, you know, it's labor intensive, it's, it's expensive. And so the, The more they can use a donor to repeat, Mm -hmm. um, the less she costs up front, right? If you cancel somebody out at cycle six and start all over again with somebody else, you have to do, you know, more screening and so on. So if you can maximize the number of donations out of a single donor, you're going to save yourself uh, money uh, on the one hand. And also, like you just were saying, um, donors who, because there's no registry, a donor who's done six cycles Mm -hmm. can easily jump to another agency, jump to another clinic Mm -hmm. and nobody's going to necessarily know how many she's done. Now, from the donors I've spoken to, that has been on the rare side. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: More common is them feeling like either addicted to the process and nobody stops them
0: Mm.
1: or, um, or being sort of, not coerced, but being sort of guided to doing another cycle because, oh, you know, they have that guideline, but it doesn't really mean anything. <laughs> so that's kind of what I've been hearing. Yeah. And then,
0: um, I mean, again, following up. Thank you. And and following up on um, eggs retrieved, because um, you were talking about the difference that you were saying that you noticed that in the United States they were retrieving more eggs per cycle and in Spain less eggs per um, Right. Is there an ASRM guideline um, talking about how many eggs should be retrieved per cycle? Or does ASRM not have a guideline referring to that?
1: ASRM does not have a guideline referring to that as far as I know. Okay. However, back in, what was it, 20-something, 2006 I think it was, in California, when California was uh, grappling with this idea of um, of using eggs for research. Mm-hmm. Uh, the California Institute for regenerative medicine there was a huge um uh it's in the in- Institute of Medicine reports in this report when they're talking about getting donor eggs for research purposes, um, and one of the things was you can't compensate donors for the re- for research eggs at the time now unfortunately you can and another guideline in another uh, thing that was mentioned in that report was donor cycles, Cycles in which a donor produces greater than 20 eggs should be canceled due to in, in, for safety for the donor. So the some of the guidelines that are out there that's been spoken to using data have said that if a person's producing greater than 20 eggs, the cancel should be cycled. Uh, the cycle should be canceled. I the should be cycled. <laughs> um, and my own data with egg donors also points to increased risk once you hit over that 20 mark. So um,
0: and it's an increased risk for overstimulation. Yes. OK. Um, yeah. And why. Why do you think in your findings are more eggs getting retrieved in the United States versus Spain? Is it a difference in drugs? Is it a dosage in drugs? What what oh. is do you think is causing that?
1: Well, first of all, I need to clarify: we don't have, as far as I can tell, any any center that's that's collecting that data. Okay. On num- so it's not a national statistic. It's my own data that understand. So, love, right. love that, love that little asterisk. Yeah, I believe SART, the Society for Reproductive Reproduction and Technology, might collect some of that eggs mm-hmm. per cycle data uh, from their from cl- participating clinics. But even as a researcher and an ASRM member myself. I, I am not able to access. I have not been able to access that data. Okay. So I don't know what national averages what it is. However, um, to answer that question, I think one of the made one of the big things behind egg quantity has to do with this changing practices surrounding um because of vitrification because of egg freezing to capabilities mm-hmm. so now with egg banks for example you can you have the capacity to split up batches of eggs freeze them and distribute distribute them around the world right so um and for example there's again from my book there's one um nobody's gonna need to buy it because i i'm covering it all here <laughs> but in any case but, buy, the book, buy, buy the book
0: everybody buy the book
1: Next fall. <laughs> but in any case, uh, we can do another one of these when, when it comes Perfect. out. Perfect.
0: <laughs> I'd love that.
1: Um, so in any case. Um,
0: that would be excellent.
1: Went... <laughs> exactly. Uh, I went to this one one egg agency bank that works hand-in-hand with a clinic in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And I interviewed um, the, this woman there. I'll uh, call her Lucy. And I interviewed her for my documentary, actually but I'm using part of it in in the book. And she talked about how they had this one donor that just produced 78 eggs. And I'm like, wow, that's a lot of eggs. She's like, Oh yeah, it was like a home run for us. And what we did is, is we, you know, package them up and we put them in the egg bank. We we sell, you know, batches of five to three sets of intended parents fresh. We put the rest in the egg bank and we, we can sell those batches of five later. And, you know, Each of those intended parents got pregnant, so it was a win-win for everybody. And so I started doing the math, okay? If you have a one-to-one donation and that egg donor is getting paid $7,500 to give all of her eggs to one intended parent, the clinic or egg bank or what have the clinic is making about, you know, say the parent, the intended parents are paying, say, $20,000 for that one cycle with that one egg donor, she's making $7,500. However, what does an intended parent need with 78 eggs, right? They don't. Uh, They maybe need 10, you know, to get a few good embryos. So with this frozen egg bank kind of model, what you can do is that intended parent can get whatever eggs they need to make an embryo. But if you break the eggs up into these batches of five, you can sell each batch of five for $14,000, So rather than a clinic making $20,000 off of one donor paying $7,500, you have a a clinic that can take 78 eggs divided divided by five, which is how many batches, sell each of those for $14,000, and you could potentially make $200,000 off of a single donor rather than $20,000. So... The model that the, the business model that comes with vitrification expands the the profit potential exponentially compared to fresh donation, and I think that both in Spain and the United States, but particularly in the United States, I see that have I've ha- happened a lot with the donors in my study. In Spain, I see it less so, although there are some. There is one clinic in particular in Spain where other Spanish clinics are kind of critiquing them mm. because they know. They know that since this clinic went into this public, you know, or into this private equity kind of Mm -hmm. funded practice, that their clinical practices have changed. So in Spain, I see more critique of that kind of a business model than I do here in the United States where it's becoming more standard. Although in Spain also, their model for oocyte distribution is the clinic owns the eggs, not the intended parent. So any donor, whether they produce 10 eggs or whether they produce 20 or 50, any donor all of those eggs belong to the clinic and the clinic distributes as they see fit okay. not all to the intended parents so
0: well we are we're coming down to the end of the podcast and i'm pretty sure i could do a five part series with you uh very easily uh but before we get to the end is there anything that i have not covered that you're just like this is what I really want your listeners to take away. Or this is one fact, one piece of the study that we haven't covered that I feel like is so important.
1: Well, I think we've covered a lot about risk, which is obviously my biggest concern for egg donors is, is the informed piece. And one of the things um, I think is really important for anybody considering egg donation to think about is that, and to have to be aware of, is that any egg bank, agency, clinic, what have you. Sure. Some are great. Some are not so great, but their interests are not necessarily always aligned with your interests. Mm. And so even if you're, it's your first time, you don't want to be a bother to the clinic. You don't want to ask too many questions because you're afraid you're going to get rejected, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of young women have told me I was afraid to push back because I didn't want to get rejected. Okay. Well, if you get rejected for pushing back, That means you did the right thing for yourself. Yes. And so anybody who's considering egg donation, whether they're 15 on TikTok or whether they're 25, ask a lot of questions. Don't don't expect that you're going to get the answer, the correct answers. You will get the answers that you want to hear Mm. and then continue to do the research And then decide if it's going to be the right decision for you, because um, nobody is really going to have your best interests at heart like you will. And if you're finding that people are not answering your questions, then that's a sign that that's not a that's not an agency or a clinic or an egg bank that you want to work with.
0: I love this answer so much. I love it. (laughs) And not only do your own research, but maybe you should read um, uh, Dr. Tober's books.
1: Yes. My my articles that you're going to be linking to, they're all open access. And, and on my website, I haven't got a chance to it yet, but on my website, there's going to be, is an R, R research tab or research tab. And I have some of my older articles available Mm -hmm. on that article on that tab. And in that tab, I make sort of any of the presentations that I've given, like for example, at ASRM, the posters and so on, I make those available there. And then I give a sort of in a nutshell, this is what this study means, right? Mm-hmm. So I break it down so somebody can walk away with the takeaway of, you know, great. Two thirds of egg donors feel uninformed about long term risks, or yes. and one one third feel uninformed about short term risk, or whatever. So you can get that takeaway message broken down for you without having to go through all the the data and the and the the science speak. So I do encourage people to take a look at my websites um, on that regard. Um, and then also personally, I mean, it seems to me donors tend to be happier when they do one-to-one cycles more so than those bank cycles where it's more, it's more anonymous and your mm-hmm. eggs are split up and there tends to be more of a personal touch with one-on-one cycles, you I can know, imagine one intended parent to one, one egg donor kind of thing um, through a clinic. Um, and just, you know, be, try to be informed and and self advocate. Oh, and also there's the We Are Egg Donors group. If, if people are considering egg donation, they can also join the, look look at the We Are Egg Donors Facebook groups and and talk to other donors before making making a decision.
0: And to also add to it, something that I would always encourage egg donors to do. And after you know listening to all of the explanations, especially when it comes to commodification, one simple: if you are interested in egg donation, I highly recommend looking at how the banker clinic advertises and recruits donors. Look yeah. at the tactics and yes. ask yourself, does this seem skeevy? Does this seem yeah. a little does this seem a little sleazy to you? Um and yeah. for me, I I do absolutely consider any clinic that recruits donors actively on college campuses that to me is a, a red flag. There are clinics that do not do that. Yeah. They are harder to find because they're not going to college campuses, but I pay as much, but yeah, but I would, tr- but when you're thinking about your life, your body, your health, mm-hmm. you, you gotta, you gotta do that. And it, it is yeah. absolutely, it's, it's, it's worth it because you, you would, yeah. I don't want you to end up as one of uh, Dr. Tober's st- uh, statistics.
1: <laughs> well, and, and to that point, I literally had an agency recruiter tell me that they they go to sorority events on college campuses oh. and they 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 schedule them with the sororities to go explain what they do, um, what you know, what egg donation means, and um, and to recruit egg donors and to, to, to sort of gloss over the process. And they'll fi- they'll often find groups of sorority sisters that think oh well we can do this together and it'll be sort of a bonding experience and so lady, go to miami go to miami go go
0: go make waffles that's your bonding activity like what (laughs) and i know that they do the same thing with frat houses as well um with sperm donation oh my god well that that's a I, I know that they do it, but whenever I hear somebody, like, remind me, I'm just like, ah, oh, God, I need to go shower again, damn it.
1: Yeah, I had another recruiter tell me that if it, that they, spe- they specifically worked with uh, and, uh – intended parents from you know asian asian donors Mm -hmm. and asian and predominantly asian intended parents um and they told me that if they have an intended parent that wants uh, you know a cellist for example they'll go out to a musical event a student musical event and try to like find a a chinese american cellist or whatever and so they will go out and do targeted recruiting
0: build-a-bears for crying out loud guys This is really getting into the baby designer category. That is just, yeah. oh, yeah. it is. I will say yeah. as a donor conceived person, I it, it just makes you feel, it makes you feel like a toy, a doll, a stuffed animal. It's, nice. it's not a good feeling. Um, yeah. But... Dr. Tober, I do not want to take up most of your more of your time. I cannot thank you. thank you enough for making the time to be on this podcast. I know that you are exceptionally busy with all the work that you are doing, you. and I want to say, as a donor-conceived person, I thank you so much for doing this research because no one else is. And thank you for doing that. Um, thank you. Thank you. Because I, you know, I I make my my sassy videos on TikTok trying to warn people who are recruiting on tiktok but the only way that i'm able to do that is because of your research so oh thank you thank you so i thank you so much for everything that you are doing i wish you nothing but luck in the future and i cannot wait to read your new book and see your documentary
1: thanks thanks look i've I've enjoyed talking to you and i look forward to seeing yours as well thank you so much have a wonderful (laughs) day